This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey, Sensitive Rebel. Today, I'm talking with Doug Brown. As the Chief Learning Officer of Summit Success International, Doug manages the learning programs for Summit Success and also coaches lawyers, entrepreneurs, and C-level executives who are determined to make more money and less time so they can live the life they want and deserve. Doug has spent the last 25 years working as an attorney, MBA professor, and entrepreneur who's helped create and turn around multiple seven and eight figure businesses. One of the things that's fun about this discussion is you'll hear Doug's early inspiration towards being an entrepreneur and it relates to his mom selling Tupperware. And I won't tell more of of the story right now. I'm just encourage you to listen for it. One of the things that you're gonna see here as well is that Well, a lot of sensitive rebels, especially men, deal with the challenges of their professional lives by just taking that emotional side and sort of blocking it out or ignoring it or just kind of brute force pushing through it. And, you know, as we've talked about in past episodes, you can do that for a while, but it comes with a price and you're going to hear how that impacted Doug in our conversation today. You're also going to hear about how Doug adjusted his approach so that he could find a path that allows him to make a powerful impact in the world while doing meaningful work and still finding time and energy for things outside of work, like, you know, hobbies and family. Here's my conversation with Doug. Doug, good to talk to you. How's it going? Oh, it's great, Steve. Happy to be here and looking forward to our conversation. Doug is coming to us today from South Carolina. So, Doug, tell me, what are you rebelling against? Until we had the conversation, I I didn't consciously know I was rebelling against anything. But I, I think what I'm rebelling against in the life that I've led is people settling for less than they're capable of. I started off my my career as a lawyer, and I fell into it. I loved doing it. And I always knew there was something more that was meant for me. And that without even unconsciously going on this journey to find the thing and constantly pivoting and striving. And I think that the work I do now is helping others who feel like uh, they might be trapped in their business. They might be wondering what's next or what if I could do it better. So I'm rebelling against not living your life to your full potential or running your business to your full potential so you can have a life as opposed to being trapped by your business. Rebelling against settling, it sounds like, for sure. Yeah, for sure. When did you really start to become aware for you of this this drive towards you know, not settling, towards going towards excellence and, and higher levels of performance and such? When, what does that date back to? I can probably see little bits of it back when I was in elementary school. There was one day, I remember there was you know, little boys would follow every one leader boy all around the field and they would just do things. And I remember one day I just thought, why am I following this dude? And so I just stopped and that was just a little snapshot. And, and then I've never been one to like go with the crowd. I've always been trying to follow my own thing and do my own thing. And I've never been too afraid of losing my job to do my job. But I think it also goes back to when I was growing up and my parents followed very unique entrepreneurial paths. And I I saw that growing up. So that's, I think, the origins of it way back then. That makes sense to me. You have this model of these people who are very close, obviously, in your world as your parents, who are following and navigating their own creative paths. So that really shows you like, this is a way that you can operate. Tell me a little bit about what they did and what you saw and just that that experience of, of witnessing that as a child, seeing your parents be entrepreneurial. Yeah, I think I think I first saw the entrepreneurial thing when I was, I, I don't know how old I was and, and back, this is way, this is, I'm dating myself now. This is, uh, when was this? This would have been in the seventies. Tupperware was a thing. And my mom sold that and we got a swimming pool and she was just doing her own thing. And then my dad, my kids like to say my dad was a spy. He wasn't a spy. He worked for a company that put one of the first spy satellites up in orbit. And 
there was a time when he came home and one of his very good friends had been there for 18 years or something and was just shown the door. And that was when he said, that's not going to be me. So he did all kinds of work to get himself to work for himself. And whether it was uh, back, (laughs) this is really dating myself now, back when there was no internet. And if you wanted to buy information systems, you had to look in a book and you put the book together and then he built houses and then they, they went into business together. My mom went from the Tupperware selling into a retail gift store and they went into business together and they worked their whole working lives. They worked together, but it was always entrepreneurial. So I think that got me to the place where I just wasn't ever going to be truly satisfied in, in a pigeonhole in a corporate space. I think for a lot of people, once we've had that sort of possibility modeled for us, certain other realities of of how work can and does look seem appreciably less appealing. I remember when my father quit his job and started a consulting business when I was, I think, early in high school, thinking to myself, that seems a whole lot better than going to an office every day. (laughs) (laughs) I might have to figure out something to, to do like this here and... So you got that shown to you from both parents. How much did they talk about their work and that experience of these entrepreneurial endeavors and the ups and downs and such of that? Was that something they discussed a lot? No, they just did it. It was was only when I became an adult that I realized how difficult it was what they were doing. And we, my brother and I, we never really saw them sweat it. It wasn't that it was looking easy, but they never shared with us in our present the ups and downs and what it's really like to be an entrepreneur and in a retail business to be undercapitalized and always just going from one thing to the next and the striving. So it wasn't like this self-awareness where we really talked about it. They just did it and we had a, a great life. So you're getting to see these cool benefits that come in. Hey, look, we've got this pool, all this other stuff. You're not hearing the downside. So they've, they've completely set you up for later <laughs> without even realizing it. And I'm not trying to, to be mean to your parents because I know they, they were not intending to do so. I don't think it was a setup. I think it was like a programming that being in control of your own destiny of if you want to go do something, try it. And if that doesn't work, something else will come along. I was spent the first half of my career, maybe more, trying to prove myself, like to myself or to others. Like I'm, you said it, the biggest motivator would even back to high school was you said I couldn't do it. Oh, really? I'll show you. And, and so that, that kind of became a, a habit. And just when I would get comfortable with something, I'd find ways to make myself uncomfortable and go do something else. So in, in a way, Maybe I'm rebelling, not just against settling, but maybe about just becoming too comfortable and becoming complacent. Well, I hear that. And I'm I'm thinking also, and I want to ask a little bit more about this. You were talking about how you from a fairly young age also kind of picked up this. I'm not just going to go along with the crowd. I'm going to follow my own path. I'm curious about that, about how that evolved for you. And how did that show up as you went through your education in elementary, junior high school and into college? You know, I was never afraid to put myself out there and do things and take leadership positions. And so back in the high school days, I made, I loved building things. There's a theme is I like creating things and fixing things. So I, I worked backstage at the theater. I worked in the, the yearbook when I was in high school. I went up through the ranks of junior achievement back in the days. And I got to take the Dale Carnegie course as a junior in high school, which was amazingly transformative. And it was the full course. It wasn't some watered down high school version. I might've been a sophomore. And then I got involved regionally and nationally in that. And I got a chance to take stages and talk in front of groups of people. And I found, wow, that was really exciting to be able to influence people that way. And then with all of this so far, we've got this stage set for this person who's you know, going to go their own way and do their own thing, who's clearly got this entrepreneurial model that's been displayed for them. How, from following along that path, did you end up making the decision to become an attorney? It's interesting because when I speak to groups of lawyers <laughs> at bar associations, and I've asked this question in the room, because you would think that people would become an attorney because they had some vision of protecting truth and justice in the American way and, and, and all those things. But a lot of lawyers just fell into it. And I I think 
when I was going through management school, went to Syracuse University undergrad, and I saw the options of careers that were laid out, and none of them looked particularly interesting. And yet I was in this, took this course in law, and I resisted it because my parents said it was a good idea. So I was like, <laughs> like you said I should do it, so I'm not going to do it. And there was this professor, Marie Provine, I still remember her. And at the beginning of class, she said, if you're a senior and you don't want to work, drop the class now. If you're a junior, you're going to struggle. If you're a sophomore, you have no business being here. And I was a sophomore. So I'm like, okay. So we got to become friends and it was, I got the great grade and, and I realized I was really good at it. And it just seemed like a logical path that coming out of college, here's something I'm really good at. I enjoy the problem solving. I enjoy the analytical thing. What I now describe is taking apart the Lego blocks of something and putting them back together in a different way. I was just fascinated by that. So I, I didn't go into law school knowing what kind of law I was going to practice. I just followed a path because it seemed like it felt right at the moment. For those of us who haven't gone to law school, it's it's a little hard on the service to imagine like here, I just fell into this thing that involves three years of really hard work, but I'll take your word for it. Well, um, the thing is hard work never frightened me. So it, it wasn't where I was doing calculus on is the work worth the effort? What's the return on investment? What other options are there? It just, it was a little bit of that. Well, there's a hill. I'm going to take the hill. I'm good at it. I'm going to just pursue this, which has become a pattern for me. By the way, if any listeners have children who are thinking about law school right now, I do not recommend this as an analytical construct. <laughs> it's really different now. It's a lot more expensive and the, the profession has really changed. So looking back, just because I did it and lots of others did it that way, doesn't mean it was the right way to do it. I, I made it work out for me. I wouldn't undo what I did, but that, that became a pattern. It's really clear you've had this mindset of you're just really being willing to go after things and push through things and stick with things. I'm curious though, because you're a human, you've had moments at, you know, I'm thinking specifically in this case, like more of your younger years, you've had moments where you struggled with something, fell on your face, something didn't work out, whatever. I'm curious about the um, mental and emotional things of what you went through that helped you to sort through that and then keep going, right? Versus going, oh, I can't do this or, oh, this is horrible or oh, whatever. You found a way to be like, all right, I'm going to sort through this and I'm going to keep going. How did you do that? Steve, there were many years that I just didn't allow myself to consciously think about that. If you're moving forward at breakneck pace, then you just keep moving forward. And there was a time when, when youthful energy and optimism and hard work just it was, there wasn't a lot of taking care of myself. There wasn't even, as I was growing up, there wasn't this self-awareness that, that self-awareness was even a thing. You just worked and you just kept going. And it was only in later years that as I took on more, I went from practicing law to being in house at a corporation where I was practicing law, then I was doing turnarounds of a large division. And it was only as that many years of accumulated stress came along that I realized how destructive it was to me that I wasn't taking care of myself, like mentally, emotionally, or even physically. In your 20s or even 30s, you can do almost anything to yourself and you'll be resilient and keep going. You start getting into your 40s and all of a sudden, you've all those years of just go, go, go start to catch up with you. So it wasn't until I had some things happen where I realized that I had to do something differently. Like what, the path that I was on was no longer sustainable. The intervals between when I would feel like I burnt out kept getting shorter and shorter. And so that's when I got to the point that I realized that if you want to take care of other people, you got to take care of yourself too. That was like a big aha moment for me because I didn't take breaks for years. I just kept going from one thing to the next. I'd, I'd fall on my face a lot and I picked myself up. Well, okay, keep going. So you were a, a proponent of the brute force method of life and success, it sounds like. It was like, okay, it happened. Just keep going. Just whether it was taking on the next case or taking on the next challenge to whether it's volunteer responsibilities or board memberships or learning new things, it was just, you just keep moving forward. And having some trust that somehow the right opportunities will come up and you'll make the right call at the right time. 
I don't advocate that as a method, by the way. I just <laughs> right, which which we're which we're going to because as you were talking about, like that was not a indefinitely sustainable approach. But I'm I'm digging into it a little bit because it is one that I have seen a lot of people try. I think this is something that can be especially true for men in our world because we don't tend to have a lot of modeling for it's okay to feel sad, scared, downright. We're not allowed to have those emotions. I say allowed, of course, in a more of a general sense, not a literal one. But so it's it's not really a thing that we are encouraged or supported in up to a point. If one is resilient and tough enough, you can do that for a while. And that's what I'm hearing for you is you were able to do that for a pretty long time. But what you said is you started to experience these cycles of you'd have kind of this burnout phase, you'd maybe kind of recover from it, but then there'd be another one. And that cycling was happening faster and faster until you got to the point of going, I can't keep doing this. Was there like a a moment or a specific event that made you say, okay, like a a tipping point kind of moment, or how did that occur? That period of my life was a blur. You go from one solving one crisis to the next crisis. My my need for variety and things that kind of fed that adrenaline need. I think the thing that was like my, oh crap moment was when I was on the business side working for a big company and I'd been running really hard. I was running a global division and the United States division, and there was a lot of work to do. And it was always in this constant state of needing development. And I, I remember being on the phone negotiating something with a big company. It was a contract we needed. And then somehow right in the middle of the conversation, I, I, I didn't black out, but I couldn't think, I couldn't process and felt like I couldn't breathe. And like, I was basically having a panic attack. And I'm like, but this can't possibly be that. I thought I was having a heart attack, but it can't possibly be that because I don't feel panicked. Like I don't feel panicked in the moment. I don't feel out of control in the moment. I knew exactly what I wanted, but at some point my body had decided at that moment that it had enough. And so that was like a wake up call because if I had felt really freaked out in my brain at that moment, it would have been congruent. It would have made sense, but it didn't. So that's when I realized I needed to like something's going on here and I need to start paying attention beyond just go, go, go and and assume that if I just keep busting my, you know what, for other people that everything will be fine. Now, as I'm listening to you say that, I'm hearing what sounds like a real disconnection on some level from your emotions or your feelings. It sounds like you were saying, I wasn't feeling these things, but there was this, obviously this physical event going on that was like, okay, there's clearly a problem here. Now, I'm curious, how would you describe your uh, relationship with and awareness of your feelings, emotions, et cetera, through your life up to this point? It's interesting. And I've had time to reflect on that and doing the work that I do now because I've really approached things differently. And I think some of it is the training that lawyers get and the conditioning that lawyers get that it's all supposed to be about logic. It's not supposed to be about emotion. And then if you let somebody know that you're somehow not feeling anything but 100%, then it's seen as a weakness that others will take advantage of. And so there's the profession really encourages that disconnect between the feelings and emotions and then this the suit of clothes you put on to go on stage as a lawyer. And so there's not, and even persists today, there's this idea that you're obviously the lawyer. And so there there is a disconnect And saying, well, yeah, I have emotions. I have good relationship with people, but work is work. And I just got to just keep going because my obligation is to provide. That's my job. And I can't let feelings get in the way of that. I just have to go do my job, which is interesting because my leadership style and the way I do things is all very intuitive. So it's supported by logic. So this is weird dichotomy of the personal side of the self-awareness piece of emotions And then the connection with the business, we're really different. And when you're in it and you're in your 30s or even 40s, you don't have any, I didn't have any idea that was going on. It was just how life was. Kind of it just, this is just how it is. This is just what you do, what you were trained, how you were trained to operate and seemed to be working okay until it gradually worked less and less and broke. Well, it got to the point where I couldn't be satisfied either. 
It was like there was just always needed more, more. And so that, that was part of the sustainability thing. Okay. Say a little bit more about, about that, where it was, you couldn't be satisfied. Nothing, nothing was enough. Tell me a little bit more about what was happening there for you and how that affected what you were doing. So I, I think that at least as it relates to business, people have different wiring. So there's some people who are the creators and the visionaries. They'll take some amorphous idea and they'll create a business. And then there are others who will build a business and then others who are wired to scale a business. And then the others who are wired to like optimize it, squeeze the last nickel out and make it really profitable. And I think as you go through business, if you are in my mode is much more of a builder in the beginning of scale, that's where I really like to be. That as you move your business through that place, you're pulled back to your center which is, I want to go build things. So when you feel like it's built, you have this, I have this need and I've seen it in other people to go back to the thing that really lights them up. And for me, I build things or I fix things, which is why when I would get businesses to the point where, okay, we're building, we're scaling. Now we need to take the last nickel out. I'm like, yeah, I know that needs to be done. I just not interested in doing it. So I was aware of that, that I felt like I was at my best contributing the most when I was going into difficult situations and businesses and fixing things, I got juice out of it. It was good. It was adrenaline high and I was really good at it. So I thought that's what I was meant to do, which is still what I do with my clients, just not hopping into the pilot seat myself. <laughs> so let's come back to the, this moment of this panic attack and what, tell me about what happened next. So you have this, you think I'm having a heart attack. No, it's a panic attack. Okay. Then what? I think I go back to going back to that time. I wish it was clearer to remember to like saying this is exactly what happened. But I think I got over whatever the thing was and reverted back to the habit that I always had. It's like, okay, I got over that. Now there's more work to do. Let's pour ourselves more into the work. I took more time for myself. I started trying to take better physical care of myself. And I started to allow myself to say, it's okay that you need downtime. It's a good thing that you take downtime as opposed to, what are you, a slacker? You need downtime? So it was a, it was a really different mode of thinking, um, much healthier mode of thinking. Because looking back on it now, I just, what I needed to do and what I work with my people on now is you need to pace yourself. It was also those times where I did what most guys do when they start exercising. You go from zero to 60, you work your butt off, then you get hurt. And you can't do it anymore. And then you get better and you do it again because you're not aware enough to say, maybe I should just ease into it. So you make some operational changes as far as like, okay, I'm going to work on the self-care. I'm going to be more mindful of these things. How much did that help? What did that shift as you continued forward professionally? I think it helped me when I went from working for the big corporation. I was a German company and I'd been flying all over the world and, and we did a reorganization. I was so excited. It was August and we agreed that I would go do something else, which was great. That was in August of 2008. Do you remember what happened in September of 2008? I think there was this whole like economy blow up taking yeah, the, sort the of economy thing. basically imploded <laughs> yeah. on itself. But luckily, I have always been out there building relationships with people, and I know a lot of people, and I had this thought. I was connected to a good friend who worked at a university, and they were starting up an online MBA program. And he and I made a run at starting an uh, entrepreneurship institute, and that got me into the university. And next thing you know, I found myself for six years as a program chair, building and teaching with some wonderful people in the post-university MBA program, which was later became the Mal Malcolm Baldrige School of Business. And the experiences that I had helped me be a better teacher because the MBA students were all seasoned professionals. They all had to have been working at least five years. And so I'm teaching them about things, but also helping them deal with all of the things it takes that I had already gone through. And the thing that you don't know when you sign up for a master's program or a JD or, or whatever, is you're learning the stuff, but you're also massively increasing your capacity for work. And you're learning so much about yourself and your own operating systems. And that's not in the brochure, but those are things you need to learn to thrive in the program. So I got to take all that and then I got to teach it. And of course, I was thrilled 
to learn that in academia, a law degree is a terminal degree, which I thought was a bad thing until they explained it. That meant you could teach at a master's level. It was the highest degree in your field. So I got to take all that and put it into action teaching and building the program, which was great fun. And I really felt like I was making a difference. And that's when, of course, I also had three kids coming up on college age. The professor's life wasn't going to support us in the way we needed to be supported. So that's when I'm like, I was blessed because the university wanted people to be practitioners. So that's when I started doing consulting into coaching. So it was a nice virtuous circle. I was taking what I was teaching and using it with students and then using it with businesses and then bringing that experience back into the classroom. I didn't really think, think I'd spend six years doing that, but that was a really fun time. And my learnings up to that point were a big part. I didn't even realize it at the time. That was a big part of why I was able to teach because now I had to make connections with the students. What were the things about that time and that work that you found to be fun? What was so different about it that, that brought the fun piece into play? I was getting to reinvent myself in a totally new way. I was learning. I, I thought I was a pretty good coach, but I was learning how to teach. I was gaining new tools to help do the things that I was best at, which is influencing people, uh, guiding them, advising them. And it was also a great team. You know, when I was in the corporation, I was one of the few lawyers in the corporation. And so we had a very small group of friends, but most people thought we were out trying to keep them from doing their job. <laughs> and then when I was the executive global vice president, then all of a sudden people who, you know, you could go have lunch with before are like, well, now you're here. I'm like, I'm the same dude. No, 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 no. You're at a different place now. So it wasn't as lonely anymore. I had peers again, and that that made it fun. So a lot more connection is what yeah. I'm hearing. Yeah, it was, it was much, that was when I started to see the true value of community and the power of community and how the, a good community <laughs> where people are pulling each other ahead as a way to help you care for yourself. It didn't just pull you ahead what you did for your work, but you had people who really cared about you and supported you and then called you out on your stuff when you were fooling yourself, which was very helpful. And how was that different from what you had experienced up to that point professionally? That's not the legal environment. Yeah. I mean, I had friends who were also lawyers and there were some, there was, some, I thought they were good communities then, but there's this inherent competition in the law and there's everybody's a bit on edge. And I don't think I realized how unhealthy it was until I found really healthy communities. And then in the corporation, you know, everybody's jockeying, everybody has agendas and it, there's a lot of people around, but when you're the leader and you're taking on all this responsibility and then there's a hundred people working for you, it's a pretty lonely place. And there's people everywhere, but it's pretty lonely. There was at a, at a later point in my next role, I had through a very dear friend and mentor got involved with a community of people who were just in my mind, truly remarkable. So it went from no community to good, healthy community to, holy cow, these are amazing people. And I had no idea that kind of community existed where you could actually be safe. You could give of yourself fully and help people and people would be interested in helping you because they wanted to without any agenda or anything else. And it was only when I found that whole next level of community that it was like, you just don't understand that's possible until you have it. So it's a little bit of the inverse. There's the whole, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. This is almost the, you don't know what's possible until you experience it sort of thing. But that's what I'm hearing is you're, there was this like, wow, this is, I had no idea this was a, even a possibility that it existed. Well, because in the intervening time, I was building my consulting practice, my coaching practice. And I finally followed my own advice when I was talking to the MBA students about would you please focus on one niche market where you have a unique value proposition? Because your business plan will be so much better if you do that. Because Amazon started selling one product, books. So what if you tried that? And after I had said that to who knows how many students I sold, told that to, I woke up like, you stupid, you're not doing that for yourself. So I just reinvented. I said, you know, I have a unique value proposition to lawyers because I'm a recovering lawyer. And I think lawyers are wonderful people. They have such great skill. They just know how to use it in one way. 
And so when I started working with them, if I can just get them to reconfigure how they're looking at things and see how their legal skills can allow them to be really good at business, then they just fly. I love the, their ability to transform. So I found myself one day at lunch with the then president of the Connecticut Bar Association, thinking that I could write some articles and maybe do some teaching to get in front of more lawyers. She asked me to, if I'd be willing to go in and be the executive director and run the organization, which after I picked my jaw up off the floor, it was, okay, you're presented with a challenge because the Bar Association had been a really important part of my development coming up as a lawyer. And this was my opportunity to give back. And I'm like, I can change them. I can flip the script. I can change the model. I can break 132 years of tradition and make it the way it's supposed to be. So I did. I took the challenge anyway. So I left the university and went to the Bar Association. But what I lost at that point was the community piece. Because now I'm the guy that's supposed to fix things. I have 10,000 lawyers as bosses. And I'm right back in the thick of it again. And so I just got busy doing the work. But all of the negative stuff that came along with just pushing the rock up the hill really got to me. And it was in those moments when I said I wanted to invest in myself that I found that community I was referring to. And they saved me from myself so that when I got the bar to where it needed to be, the universe gave me another opportunity to go to work with a very good friend to help him transition his fourth generation business to his daughter's and leave the lawyers behind, which I was happy to do. But now I had these, I had this support system around me. And I also was having a coach with me too. So I was not only had a community, but I had somebody who was truly a mentor who was working with me. And that's when I saw the power of that. And I thought, when I'm done with the family transition to the fifth generation, because that had a defined time period, I'm like, that's what I want to do. That's my thing. I've been looking for all this time is to take the experiences that I have from a business world, from emotional, from the ups and downs and flopping in my face. And I want to help the people who were, who are in that same position I was in find their thing. But it was all discovered through just allowing myself to associate with people who I just saw as amazing people. What is it that is saying that you become who you surround yourself with? You're I think it's the, yeah, you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with and sayings that are all basically the same idea. Now, one more thing on that community piece I'm, I'm curious about is when did you develop, I'll say, a conscious awareness of the value and importance of community? How did that, that come into your awareness? I'm not sure. I think that the event, I went to a, a conference and my coach was there and he introduced me to some people and, and I just felt such connection with the people there, because everybody self-selected people who were across different fields, but they wanted to improve themselves. They were willing to put themselves out there. They were willing to invest to do that. I think I realized it because I experienced it. If I hadn't experienced it, it, it would have been an intellectual thing. Uh, oddly, I needed to feel it emotionally. And that's when I had this aha moment. I, I found myself walking on the beach in Fort Lauderdale one morning, and I was I just asked myself the question, what if you didn't have to choose between taking care of yourself and taking care of other people? What if you could do both? What if taking care of yourself actually increased your capacity to take care of other people? I played with that idea for a while because it was very much my, that was not really my consciousness then. And since that time, it's become clearer and clearer how true that is. We seem to like either or, right? It's like you can do this or that. You can be this or that. And it turns out that's not necessarily the case. And often it's it's not the case. And so here for you, it's this, hold on a second. What if I did both of these things? Yeah. And it, and it, you know, it came out of the, the program. Part of what they were teaching is this thing that improv artists do, which is yes, and. Whatever you get, you accept and you say and and you move on. So I was learning about this power of yes, accepting what is, whatever's given to you. doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean you don't want to change it. Just have to accept where you are and what's next. Because I grew up in a no, but, right? I'm a lawyer. No, that's wrong. But so it was just a total inversion of the model. And it just made so much more sense. I'm now really 
finding myself wondering about the idea of doing a improv course for attorneys just to see what it would do, because I think it could be really fascinating to watch them them wrestle with this idea of yes and. Well, what's what's interesting is and why I find lawyers interesting more so interesting is it's amazing how many lawyers have super creative hobbies that are not law. Massive number of lawyers are musicians or performers or artists, or it's almost like they have this whole other persona to balance out the buttoned up lawyer. And so those layers are fascinating, but that stuff's never allowed to come into the legal business. And, And I think it's a mistake as I coach my clients, and I say this at least once a week, as we talk about marketing is nobody has ever made a buying decision that wasn't emotional. Every single buying decision is emotional. So let's just recognize that that's how humans are wired and deal with that. And it's such a mind-blowing concept for people who are living in a logical world. Yes. I think it's also unsettling to people who don't like to think of themselves as emotional, irrational creatures, even though that's at some level all of humanity. Yes. So it's it's a really unsettling concept that, wait a second, I'm making decisions from an emotion. No, that's not what's, it's all very logical. Once it's fascinating because once they get that concept, they understand their clients better because they get frustrated. Like I've given you, this is the logical path. Why aren't you following the logical path? There's a good reason. But if you can help your client connect with that path emotionally as well, then you're doing them a better service. But the soft skills are things that technical professionals like lawyers are very uncomfortable with because it's not taught. And it's not concrete enough. And so they just almost deny, like I was, in denial that it was even a thing. So you come out of this program that you do, you have this awareness of, hey, wait, what if I went, yes, and how did that shift things for you? It got me more intentional about what I wanted to create. It helped me see that my dream of fundamentally transforming how lawyers associations or my lawyers association behaved was not possible that I could get it to a point where it's way better off than it was before it, but it's I'm never going to get it to the place that I thought it needed to go. And that allowed me to let go a little bit and say, all right, what's next? And then the my, my friend's business came along and I'm like, oh boy, I used to teach people about the difficulty of transitioning from generation one to generation two, never mind generation four to generation five. And here I've got a good friend that's you know, the last man standing in a 132-year-old business. And if I can help him free himself and set up his daughters, that would be a really good use of a couple of years. So I was able to be much more intentional about what I wanted to create and what was going to come after that, which was different from let's hop on this thing, let's do this thing, and then someday I'll figure something else out. It was the mindfulness and then the community and that awareness that I could make choices about what I wanted to create and prepare myself to do that. What what are the thoughts, ideas, feelings that drive the intentional choices you have shifted to making professionally? For me, it was this nice accumulation of all the things that I had learned about building businesses, about turning things around and creating companies that it's all the strategy work that I had never really done for myself. But what do I really value? What problems do I really enjoy solving? What people do I really enjoy working with? What environment do I need to do that work? Do I want to do it? What platform? Do I want to do it myself? Do I want to be in a team with other people? What kind of community do I want? So I was literally taking kind of the Lego blocks apart for myself of what I really wanted and then putting together a vision of this is what I want to create. And with, I guess, unconsciously using the skills that I had taught of things that I'd done for other businesses, just turning them inward and saying, boy, if I could have this kind of life, that would be the thing. That would be a logical extension for where I, from where I started. I could provide value to other people. I could actually start to enjoy all those things that I've built as opposed to just taking care of everybody else, take care of myself. And I really believe that if we want to fix something, with ourselves, we have to be aware of what's going on. We have to be, you can call it mindfulness, call it awareness. But if you're not aware of it, and if you can't accept it as fact of where you are, 
then you don't have a stable enough foundation to do anything with it. And and I struggled with the mindfulness idea of just accepting things because I'm not an accepting thing kind of guy. But then I got it. it. Accepting it doesn't mean it's okay. Like it's a good thing. It just means that it is. It's accepting the facts, even if the facts are really uncomfortable and you don't like them. And Acknowledging the truth and reality of our situation. Yes. Um, and then you have the ability to change it if you so choose or right. your perspective on it if you can't change it. And it is, it's very hard to make a change to a thing when you aren't even able or willing to acknowledge what the thing is. That makes perfect sense if you step back from it. But in the moment, I think people can wrestle with it. We don't want to acknowledge the uncomfortable things because we don't like them or we feel bad about them or feel guilty about them. And it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Maybe it's because in mindfulness, they use the word of accepting. Maybe it's maybe acknowledging is a better word. I think acceptance is a loaded word because to a lot of people, it does infer a okay with it sort of thing yeah, yeah. rather than and that's usually I tell people, I go, when, when, I, when we're talking about acceptance in this context, all we mean is acknowledging what is yes that's it it's nothing nothing more than that it's acknowledging here is the truth of the situation and yeah you don't have to like it you don't have to stay there any of that but we've got to know where we are if we want to go somewhere else and then you get curious about where do you want to go and why do you want to go there and how does it serve you what is it you want to create and then coming up with a plan to get there and then i think the big thing that i'm seeing more and more, and I'm everybody's be conscious of it, is what my coach calls head trash. The stories we tell ourselves that are wrong, that we make up to support our view of the world, the worry, anxiety that we're not enough or that we're not worthy. And that the words, and for a lawyer to say this is really woo-woo, I guess, but the way we talk to ourselves and about ourselves, we wouldn't even think that about another person. You would, but, but you say it in your head about yourself. And that's a habit to change. After this project, come back to the the career journey for you, this project of helping your friend with his business and transitioning his business, how did you go about deciding your next steps and onward from there? I was tired of having employees. Back early in my days when I was talking to my own, my first career coach before coaching was a thing, they're like, you should be coaching. And I'm like, I'm a lawyer. What the heck is coaching? Is that even a thing? But I had done it when I was teaching. And then in the last year or so, as the project job was winding up, I started doing it more. And then um, I started really thinking about, let's do this for real. My kids were getting about a point they were done with college. We were doing okay. And I said, this is a chance to do this because I'm really good at it. And I can connect with people in a way that other people can't. And I learned things about myself through my community that, you know, the unconscious competence. I'm like, I always had a sense that I had this ability to connect with certain types of people. And then through my community of people and asking for feedback and the women entrepreneurs that I work with, I don't treat them any differently than anybody else, but there's an appreciation for how I communicate with them and make a connection and help them see things without being judgmental in a way that they can digest and process. I don't know how I do it, but I'm told that's a thing. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I was, through my communities, I'm getting all this reinforcement. This can be a thing. And so as I got to that point, I started thinking, you know, I don't want to just be by myself doing this. I knew that I'm best in a team environment. And so one thing led to another, one conversation led to another. And my coach and mentor invited me to become part of his organization as his chief learning officer and executive coach. And so now he's a business partner and he's a coach and a mentor and a great person to learn from. And so that gave me the platform to continue to learn and go off and do the work that I'm doing now, which is helping lawyers mostly and entrepreneurs as their guide on their journey to get more efficient, to create teams, to scale their business and um, have a life too, and not let the business trap them. It's all the journey I took. So I don't come at it from, I'm going to tell you how you should do it out of a book. It's, well, when I was in your situation, here's what I did. It didn't work and you should try that or vice versa. And it feels like that's the work I was meant to do. 
Tell me more about that. You said it feels like the work I was meant to do. Like, what is it about for you, the experience of doing this work that gives you that sense? I know what it's like because I relate to being a successful person and getting a lot done and still feeling like there was something more, still feeling like I'm stuck. And I get to go in and, and pick my clients very carefully because <laughs> I, I, I only work with people who there's a good fit because I didn't used to do that and it wasn't fun for either of us. <laughs> my wife calls me Mr. Question, Dr. Question, because I'm asking questions <laughs> to get people to see things differently. But I get to see these people make these shifts and then take these ideas that we developed together and they just run with it. And then I can look back and say, this person and everybody in their circle, their family, their employees are better off because I had a little piece of it. I had one client, he'd been working with me on time management and succession planning. He was a lawyer and he was with me for about four weeks, four, four or six weeks. And he said, you know, my wife wanted me to tell you that I'm a better person to be around since I started working with you. I'm like, what? She tells me I'm more relaxed. I'm more present when I get home and I'm just a better person to be around. I'm like, damn, that's why I do this work. It's for those moments. Cause I, I gave it, I'm, I don't know if I, what I did special, but I helped him unlock that in himself. And if I can, in the years that I'm working, make that difference with people and help them move along in their journey like I did and be the mentor I didn't have till much later in my life. I think that's work worth doing. I would agree. If I were to ask one or more of your clients, what is it that you're getting from working with Doug? How does this experience transform you and why does it transform you? What do you think they would tell me? I've asked some of them that question. And um, I think they like that there is somebody who will listen without judging because a lot of the work that we do is just giving them a chance to express their thoughts and their feelings and say, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Am I going in the right direction or how would I go about this? Because they don't have anybody to talk to. And that is a big help to them. So I know that is one of the benefits they get. I also help them change and develop their habits so they can get more done without feeling the stress, without having to work really stupid hours so they can have more time with their family and take their like little practice and make it more of a business. So they're learning about them. One of my clients is a super high achiever, ex-army ranger, and he's a voracious reader of leadership things. And, and he came to me because he felt like he was tired of playing whack-a-mole Remember whack-a-mole, <laughs> trying to get everything done? And so we worked on working on time, but we also working on how can he be a better leader of his team because he wants to be a better leader of people. And that's going to help him make more money, but it's also passing on this legacy. He understands leadership's important and he wants to create an organization that can run without him so that he can live his life. So the, the transformation is it's being more in control of, of what's going on. And, and lawyers love control. I love control. It's being more resilient when the day knocks you off track, how to get back on track and not get spun off. And then just the comfort of having somebody to talk to who'll tell you the truth and the truth when you're being too hard on yourself. And that's what makes it rewarding because I get to develop those relationships with folks. Yeah. And I, I can definitely hear, hear that and listening to you talk about this. It sounds like to me is there's an intersection that's created by you that is twofold. On one hand, you have, because of your long history of experience, both in the legal field, but also in working with businesses in different ways, you have enough business knowledge and skill that you can work in a kind of consultative or teaching fashion on those things. But I'm also hearing that you're providing this environment to the folks that you're working with where they can talk about these things. You can poke at them, but it, it feels like it's safe. That's not a word you've used, but that's the impression that I'm getting. They feel comfortable doing that. And that allows them to go places that they wouldn't necessarily, especially if we're talking about attorneys who, as you've talked about, because there's this sort of, yes, there's a community, but it's a sort of competitive community. And there's these kind of things that are being hidden and such. And so having this space where you can be like, here's the real truth and know that you're going to get support and ideas and such seems like something that would be very powerful to your clients. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's what they experience. And they appreciate that I understand what it's like to be a lawyer. I'm not giving them legal advice. They're the experts at being a lawyer. But I, I get what it's like to relate to clients and staff. And a lot of times we're talking about they're frustrated with a staff member or a client. And because I've spent a lot of my life studying how and why people behave, I'm able to empathize with them and say, is it possible they're experiencing something different? And how might you go about that so you can serve them instead of just being frustrated with them? Or they keep coming to you at the last minute for a crisis. What if we tried to help them with their time management so that, because they don't like the crisis any more than you do. And it's having that outside perspective who gets what it's like to be a lawyer that when I say things like that, they're like, yeah, let's explore that. (laughs) And if you don't know the business of the person you're working with, it's hard to do that because you can't go deep enough. So that experience for you really gives you an ability to dig into some things to a greater level than some other folks might. Yeah. We all make lawyer jokes. (laughs) Lawyers make lawyer jokes about lawyers. But one of my big whys is that as a profession, lawyers are incredibly unhappy and dissatisfied and they have huge amounts of debt and they're overworking themselves. But we need them to be profitable. We need them to have a life because we need them in our communities. We need them in our school boards. We need them in our condo associations. We need them in our soccer teams. And if they're trapped in their practice, they can't do any of that stuff. And they need to be able to do that because it's the presence of lawyers and all these different aspects of life who understand how to process information in a different way and who understand the rule of law. That's, I think that's really foundational to our society. So that's kind of an amorphous thing, but I feel like I'm doing my part by helping them live better lives. For you, ultimately at this point, like I'm thinking historically in your career is more of this kind of, okay, what's the next thing that kind of shows up and jumping on it. Now that you're more intentional, I'm curious if you look out into the future professionally for you, what's your ultimate goal or vision for your work? What are the things you really would want to achieve with it from here? You know, the good news for me is my vision isn't just about my work now, it's about my life. So we're living in a place where I can enjoy what I've built and I still get to work with people. So instead of just talking about you should go out and have a life that's balanced where you get to have fun and enjoy yourself and still do what you want to do, I'm like, oh, by the way, that's the life I'm living. So I'm like, it's it's kind of a, a, a mind shift. So looking ahead to continue doing that with people, to create ways to reach more people through speaking and some other program formats where those who I can't work with one-on-one, I can still reach them in some way through this kind of format and through teaching and other things so that I can extend my influence that way. And not to get so caught up in that, that I don't live the life that I've built for myself. So it's really, it's really a different operating system right now than go, go, go strive. It's much more sustainable pace. It sounds like you really feel like the path that you're on and the things that you're doing are right. Like that fits you. It's more about, okay, what other ways can I do this work that I can bring it to more people or bring it to people in different ways to just be able to expand upon what it is that you're doing? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of fun. That's building, that's exploring and connecting with people and having conversations like this. And I'm happy that Live public speaking is a thing again, (laughs) so I can get on stages. I love stages. I've always loved stages. Anybody who knows me knows I love having a microphone in my hand. What would you say for you, you see currently as the biggest challenge or obstacle in continuing forward on your path? I think it's continuing to be mindful, all the lessons that I've learned, and to be patient that I'm in a really good place and I really want to do more and more faster and faster, but it takes time to build things. So there's this constant, maybe struggle is not the right word, but the habits that I teach about managing your time and staying motivated and staying on track and not getting distracted and all that stuff, those aren't things you learn and then suddenly you learn them and you never have to practice them again. These are skills that you are forever practicing and refining because as soon as you stop, you revert back to all the things that don't serve you. So in a a way, the things that I'm working on are the things I'm helping my clients work on because you're never done. It's this lifelong 
journey to always try to be better. I've probably lost the same hundred pounds however many times in my life, right up and down. Because as soon as you get to a place and you go back to the bad habits, the weight comes back. So you've always got to be vigilant. And I think that's something I will continue to work on. And my clients need to keep working on too, because we're not, our environment's dynamic. We're never done. Would you say that parallel of some of the work that I'm doing personally is very much similar, if not the same to the things that I'm helping my clients with? Does that help you to do your own work? I think it keeps you humble. I think that it helps in my work because I'm an open book with my clients. And so when I first started coaching, I thought, you can't let them see you struggle. You're supposed to have the answers. And then when I share something that I'm working on, the same kind of thing that they are, they feel a deeper connection with each other because, oh, we're in the same place. So I think that helps me to do the work because if you're going to serve a community, you can't get too far removed from what they're experiencing. I would agree. And I think, yes, you hit on such an important point, I think, for anyone who is in the business of, of helping, serving, supporting others, is it's so easy to get caught up in that idea of, I have to be the expert. I have to look like I've got it all together and all figured out. And that's so untrue. All that does is it alienates you from the people that you're serving because they can't relate to that because they know they've got all their challenges. And that's what I'm hearing for you is you're, you realize that like when I am vulnerable with them, it supports greater connection. Yeah. When I first went to my speakers program, we got schooled on that pretty quick that, you know, we thought I'm going to put on my onstage voice and I'm going to be speaker man. And like, nobody wants to listen to that. They want authentic stories. They don't want to see a, a, a suit on stage. They want to see somebody they can connect with. And whether you're lawyering or you're in a podcast or whatever, our number one job is to connect with people. Because if you don't have that, you don't have an ability to influence them. What you just said, I think is key. It's like, our number one job is to connect with people. Yeah. And I think you're so right that if we can't connect with people, we can't help serve, support, or influence them. And when you're connected, you have a community that supports you and allow yourself to be supported. It's okay. So what is the next step on your journey, Doug? What's coming up for you in the uh, present or immediate future as you go forward here? The next step is I'm going to get out and do more speaking as speaking becomes a, a live speaking becomes a thing. My business partner and I are working on a program for lawyers that would allow us to reach more that we can't coach personally, a practice accelerator for lawyers. So we're, we're working on that and uh, plan to come out with that in September of 21 and continue to go out and learn and serve and make a difference to people one one person at a time. I think there's a lot of people both looking forward to getting out on stages, but also being in rooms where there are people on stages because the energy is is very, very different in person versus any kind of video thing. And I think the pandemic upped the game where if you're going to go into a live room and speak with somebody and listen to somebody, they better have the goods. And I look forward to that because that's what it should be. I love that. I love it. It's like, this is going to be harder and that's cool. I like that. I like that perspective, <laughs> right, Doug. Right. That's great. That's great. Now, Doug, if people would like to learn more about you or get in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? I am the chief learning officer of Summit Success International. My coach, mentor, and business partner is Walt Hampton. Some of your listeners may know Walt. I think he did an episode with you a while ago. Um, you can uh, find us at summit-success.com. And my email is Doug at summit-success.com. And I will have links to all of that in the show notes. I want to, want to thank you for, for taking the time to come on and, and to talk about your journey and, and your work and what you're doing. You've hit on a lot of, I think, really valuable and important points, right? Community, support, being really willing to keep pushing things and to, to get up and keep going forward, but to do so in a way that's actually more sustainable, which is, it sounds like one of the real learnings you've had on your journey. Yeah. Walt and I talk about time mastery and energy mastery, and I really have come upon this pace idea to help remember what to do, but also just the simple idea that if your life is a marathon, you have to pace yourself. You can't run all out all the time. And even a single marathon runner supported by a team of people that keep them going. And everybody who's ever been successful and not in business has been part of a team. And so if you're if, if your listeners are struggling with that, start putting the right people around you and create your own version of that community that I talked about, because 
that's the foundation for everything else. Yeah, find one, or if not, yes, create your own. I think that's a solution people don't always think of, and it can be hard work, but time well spent. And find the right coach for yourself. And not every coach is a good coach for people. And some people might find a professional or just, but the coach or the mentor, my relationship with my coach and my mentor is transformational for me. It helped me through those times that I wasn't sure I was going to get through. And that kind of thing is like a lifeline. We all need to have people in our world who can help us see things when we lose sight of them, who can tell us the things we don't necessarily want to hear, but need to hear. <laughs> right, exactly. Give us that extra little bit. I think that's absolutely true. That's a really valuable and important thing. But your point about it being the right one, I think is so important too, because the right coach for one person might be the wrong one for somebody else. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very personal thing. Doug, well, th thanks again. Really good to, to talk to you here and best of luck as you go forward. All right. Thanks, Steve. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward.